Sea Monster Crisis of 1987. This is episode 201, a press conference in Reykjavik. I'm Keith Pilly. So yeah, we're back. Welcome back. I am excited to tell you everything I've learned in the past year while I have been researching this. It's been a wild ride. Uh, to be honest, for a while I wasn't sure this was even going to be possible. Because, you know, current events being what they are, a lot of Russian sources abruptly got basically impossible to access. But uh, I, I persevered. I found some alternate sources. Um, you know, I can tell the story pretty well from the American side. And, uh, you know, since this is a more recent event than the crisis of the 40s and 50s, I was able to talk to some actual participants like Javier Delgado and Juliana Burke. Uh, this was absolutely crucial for filling out the American side of the story. Of course, it is pretty much impossible these days for an American to get decent access to French sources that are worth a damn. But uh, I'm getting way, way ahead of myself there. Uh, let's 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 start this properly. So, I'm going to take it for granted that if you're listening to this, you've listened to season one my detailed history of the full-on war between the United States and sea monsters in the Pacific Ocean in the late 40s and early 1950s. I know it feels a little presumptuous saying, I assume you listen to my podcast, but hey, you did choose to download a podcast labeled Season 2. So, you know, you have some agency here. The reason this matters is that even though the material covered here is different from the 40s, in that a lot more of you listeners probably lived through this, or at least some of you did, a, uh, a whole lot of the institutional response to the 87 crisis was informed by stuff that went down in the 40s. So a lot of the references that I'm going to make to things like the electric deck defense, or Operation Mousetrap, or the work of Dr. K. Hendry, it's not going to make much sense if you don't have that grounding. That said... I will try to provide a little bit of explanation for that stuff when it comes up so that you don't have to coast entirely on memory. And of course, if you're my age, a lot of the material I'll be covering this season is stuff you might have seen on TV, or at least you might have seen TV coverage of it, usually in the form of ships blundering around in awful weather in the North Atlantic, and Robert Kennedy standing at a podium saying terrifying things, and then of course the terrifying just gallery of images from the end of the crisis. But that TV coverage was almost always just showing just the tip of the iceberg in terms of what was really going on, and not really even a very clear picture of that tip. I'm going to try to show you the whole iceberg, or at least as much of it as I can, working from a bunch of memoirs, interviews, Freedom of Information Act requests, and openleaks.org revelations. I'm going to tip my hand here a little bit and tell you up front that one of the main things I'd really like to drive home with this season, the gap between how exciting your imagination can make a historical event seem versus how banal, or is it banal? I never know if I'm getting that right. I'm going with banal. I'm from the Midwest. Versus how banal the process behind it can be. Some of what I'm going to tell you here, and a lot of this stuff is probably stuff that you remember, is legitimately exciting and shocking. But a lot of it, and this is the stuff that made the exciting and shocking stuff happen most of the time, 
is really just a bunch of middle-aged people arguing in badly decorated offices and conference rooms, yelling at each other about opinions they hold firmly about situations they don't really understand. And I am here to tell you, that is the primary driver of modern history, or at least one of them. One last upfront thing. I also wanted to mention that if you're coming in from season one, this is a very different incident that unfolded a very different way. The 87 crisis was a lot more compressed in terms of time and space. In the advance of communication and military technology since 1952, just generally meant that life happened a lot faster. So this will be much more of an hour-by-hour examination of stuff, day-by-day, rather than the more sprawling story that spread over eight years that we saw in the, uh, in the first season. Okay then, let's get started. I actually want to start us out not that long ago. I would like you to think back to August of 2011, when the undersea explorer Karina McDonough famously found the wreck of the USS Nimitz at the bottom of the North Atlantic. The Nimitz was, of course, a U.S. supercarrier that had been lost during the 87 Sea Monster Crisis. The spot on the surface where she went down was pretty well established. It had been known, you know, basically since 87. But for decades, no one knew where the wreck lay on the bottom. And of course, the conditions of the water around there meant that nobody could do much in the way of searching for a long time. But by 2011, the area was considered safe enough for daredevils like McDonough to go down into it. And while I can't pretend that this was a big deal to everyone, I remember that all of us naval history nuts were just stoked to find out that she was out there looking for the Nimitz. And then she found it. And for a little while, the naval history nut part of the web was just a wash in footage from her remote submersible going down through the murk to this giant, giant wreck laying on the bottom. Water up there is really cold, of course, so wrecks don't change too much when they sit. And in the Nimitz's case, that meant you could still see her as she was when she went down. Major damage to her island superstructure, her flight deck unmistakably bulging in from the blast wave, everything kind of slaggy and melted looking. Remember that the uh, submersible actually brought up the ship's bell and it was just sort of a shapeless melted hunk of metal? That was just nuts. And then in the footage, the submersible shifts down to look you know, at the underside of the hull. And you can see the ruptures that sent her down, the spots where the hull couldn't take the force put on her from the blast, especially when she was already weakened by, well, the camera pans forward then to the bow. And even with all the melting deformity, you just, you can't miss the crush marks from enormous tentacles. But do you remember, and I'm assuming that you're part of the Naval History Nut Internet because, hey, you are listening to this show. Do you remember the bit maybe a week before McDonough found the Nimitz, when, just a couple miles away on the seafloor, she came across another remarkable wreck? The Icelandic fishing trawler Trollafoss, and I'm going to be murdering Icelandic names throughout this show, and I'm, I'm, I apologize in advance. Anyway, at least the back half of the Trollafoss. Again, the cold water of the North Atlantic had preserved the hulk remarkably well, And in McDonough's footage, you can clearly see that the front half of the boat, and while she was dwarfed by the Nimitz, a fishing trawler is still a pretty big boat, had been bitten clean off. Bitten. That solved another of the 1987 mysteries. Trollafoss was one of the first ships to go missing, 
and her disappearance had helped kick things off. But we'd never known exactly what had gotten her. Now we did. Bitten in half by what appeared to be a giant shark. Trollophus must have been one of the first victims of Big White. Okay, with that memory refresher in mind, let's go back a little further. Back to the late 80s. A very, very different time. On May 1st, 1987, an assistant agricultural attaché from the American Embassy to Iceland took a walk in a park in Reykjavik. She'd seen a chalk mark on a post box outside her apartment the morning before, alerting her to check under a trash can in the park afternoon. When she checked, making sure no one was watching her, she found an empty pack of cigarettes with a microfilm cartridge inside it. As a very junior intelligence officer, she didn't actually know much about the identity of the agent that had left it there, just that it was a source inside the Icelandic Defense Ministry known within the CIA station as H.T. Rounder. The attaché took the microfilm back to the embassy, developed it, and gave the resulting documents, because this had been a picture of several typed sheets, a report from H.T. Rounder, gave them to her supervisor, a much more experienced spy, whose cover was as a special envoy for international fishing concerns. The next morning, May 2nd, 1987, President Robert Kennedy's daily intelligence briefing concluded with an item indicating that Einar Jokel, Iceland's Minister of Defense, would be giving an abruptly scheduled press conference the next morning. The CIA station chief in Reykjavik, Dick Price, had no solid indication of what the topic would be, although a flurry of in-person meetings and unbroken electronic communication at Icelandic naval headquarters indicated that there was a pretty good chance that it involved a naval matter. This is the only reason the matter was included at all. Normally, government press conferences in Iceland, or pretty much anything in Iceland, wasn't considered a matter of crucial enough importance to make the presidential daily briefing. But at this point in his presidency, Kennedy was experiencing a marked decline in America's international prestige and influence, and there were real concerns that Iceland might be on the verge of pulling out of both the Atlantic Defense Pact which is the international organization put in place in 1953 to serve as a counterweight to the Soviet domination of Eastern Europe, and the Treaty of Portsmouth that allowed the United States and the United Kingdom to jointly run a series of sonar receivers along the ocean floor in Icelandic territorial waters. This was part of the so-called GIUK for Greenland, Iceland, UK sonar line. The GIUK was considered an indispensable part of the West system for keeping track of Soviet subs as they moved into the North Atlantic, and the loss of the Icelandic section of the line would be catastrophic. So the item was deemed high priority enough that Kennedy needed to be informed of it, and it was included in the briefing. Now, most of the other items of that briefing remain classified. I was only able to see a heavily redacted copy of it. But to all accounts, Kennedy was more concerned with reports of KGB activity in Paris and the curious lack of response from the French government. So when National Security Advisor Juliana Burke got to the final item about the briefing in Iceland, Kennedy was impatient and demanded that Burke get more information before this conference happened. And then the briefing moved on to its close. Now we should stop a second and talk about where Robert Kennedy was at politically in the spring of 1987. The short answer is he was in the ditch. He'd been popular as Hubert Humphrey's vice president for eight years, 
and that had been enough to let him beat Republican Bob Dole in 1984. But once in office, his administration had been a steady churn of foreign policy missteps and domestic gridlock. Part of the concern about KGB activity in Paris actually came from one of those missteps. Towards the end of his term, Humphrey had gotten close to luring France into the Atlantic Defense Pact with the U.S., U.K., and some smaller fish. And it was seen as open to Kennedy to close the deal. And this would have been a big deal, because with France as a member, the ADP would be a much more credible counterweight to the Soviet Union and its vassals in the Berlin Pact. But during a state visit to Paris, Kennedy had gotten visibly, publicly sick after dinner with French President Milot. He nearly threw up on Milot's wife's shoes. And while that incident probably wasn't the only reason France had resisted joining the ADP, it made a handy public narrative about Robert Kennedy bumbling foreign policy lightweight and wuss. The Democrats were then absolutely shellacked in the 86 midterms, and Kennedy's chances for a second term were considered dicey at best. Anyway, Kennedy's request for more information about the Reykjavik briefing meant a very tight timeline, and Iceland's CIA station was not exactly staffed with the agency's brightest lights. Luckily, the Icelandic government was also not exactly staffed with geniuses in the art of counterintelligence, so it kind of evened out. By the end of the day, on the 2nd, the CIA had more information for Kennedy, and it was enough to make him at least temporarily stop thinking about Milo possibly playing footsie with the Soviets. The CIA's source in Reykjavik, the aforementioned H.T. Rounder, indicated that Yokel's conference had been scheduled after several days of furious wrangling within the Icelandic Ministry of Defense. Most of the department had wanted to wait, but eventually Yokel had overruled them and abruptly scheduled the conference. And the controversial topic of this conference, an abrupt spike in losses of fishing boats working the seas southwest of Iceland, culminating in three trawlers lost in a single day, including the Trollafoss, for what it's worth. And the bigger topic with all this, Yokel's concern that this indicated a possible outbreak of aggressive sea creatures, the likes of which hadn't been seen since 1952. Now, it's hard for me to overstate how visceral Kennedy's reaction to this was, and I'd like to take a second to break this down, because it and Kennedy's perceived international and electoral weakness, this is all going to drive a lot of everything else I'm going to talk about. So I said earlier that if you're listening to this episode, I'm kind of taking it for granted that you listen to season one of this show, or are at least familiar with the major points of the U.S. sea monster conflict of the 40s and 50s. So that means you know how incredibly destructive and damaging it was. Thousands of people died, either directly killed by sea creatures or by secondary effects. The American economy was absolutely kneecapped for at least half a decade. A major metropolitan area was thoroughly destroyed, although of course by the 80s the cleanup and reconstruction effort was pretty decently along. A sitting president was induced to commit suicide in office in despair. Now, this is just my opinion, but I think you can make a very persuasive case that a world where the United States hadn't spent the years after World War II neck-deep in another existential conflict, this would be a very, very different place in terms of American strength and stability 
and the balance of power between the United States and the Soviet Union. So this is why Kennedy bolted upright, metaphorically at least, at the word that Yokel was going to announce the possibility of a creature resurgence. There had been no sign of sea monster activity since 1952, absolutely none. Although I should point out here that since the last round had been in the Pacific, that was where most of the monitoring had taken place. And even that had been allowed to slowly diminish as the years ticked on with no sign. A resurgence would be a big, big deal. At first, Kennedy saw this as a potentially positive thing. According to a couple of different sources, he was excited at the prospect of getting a chance to make a big public stand in a foreign policy crisis. The consensus among scientists, or at least among the kind of scientists that the White House listened to, was that the threat of sea monsters was gone. Whatever had happened, had happened. Three decades without a sign was a long time. And all the available evidence makes it really clear that Kennedy thought that there was absolutely no chance at this point that Iceland was losing fishing boats because of sea creature activity. Like I said towards the beginning of season one, sometimes boats just disappear. Sometimes even in groups. Kennedy was positive that this is what was going on here. So here was a chance to declare publicly that he was capital D, capital S, doing something by, say, sending the Navy in to blanket the waters south of Iceland. And then, when no creatures turned up, because there weren't any creatures, why, then he could claim to have beaten them, and he could be Thomas Dewey all over again. National Security Advisor Juliana Burke quickly persuaded him otherwise. In the course of my research for this show, I was able to spend some time asking her questions directly. Unfortunately, the audio from my interview with her, it, it's, it's shit. You, you can't, uh, don't use your iPhone to record important interviews. Um, but, you know, I, here's a transcript of how she describes the moment. Burke, quote, I have to admit that right then, I wasn't worried that we were seeing an actual sea creature outbreak. I was invested in the same, I guess you'd call it groupthink, as everyone else in the White House. It had been so long that we didn't think it was possible that they were really back, but I was deeply worried about a public panic at the idea of a sea creature outbreak. We all knew that even after a few decades, the country was still traumatized by what we'd been through in the late 40s. It really seemed to me that a public official, even one from another country that most Americans didn't spend a lot of time thinking about, Public official announcing a sea creature resurgence, well, it could easily trigger a wave of hysteria that could cripple the country and destabilize the economy. And even though politics weren't really supposed to be part of my concern, I argued that this kind of crisis could, fairly or not, reinforce the public narrative of Robert Kennedy, foreign policy disaster man. If nothing else, I knew that was a lever that would persuade Robert Kennedy. And it worked. He came around to my point of view very quickly. Of course, we would all have a lot to regret from this before too long. End quote. Kennedy's Secretary of State, former Senator Joe Biden, was in the room as this discussion was happening. After a quick consultation, Kennedy sent Biden back to the State Department with orders to arrange a direct phone call to Iceland's Prime Minister, and I'm sorry, I'm not going to get this right, Steingrimur Hermansen, to happen as soon as possible, and for goddamn sure before the morning of the 3rd, and remember that Iceland's a few hours ahead of Washington. He also sent word to the Pentagon that he needed to talk to General Clayton Abernathy as quickly as the general could be located. 
Secretary of State Biden was able to arrange the call between Kennedy and Hermanson fairly quickly. Again, this isn't a thing I can prove, but it wouldn't surprise me at all to hear that Hermanson expected it. Kennedy had a bit of a tricky line to walk here. He really, really wanted to just straight up tell Hermanson to order Yokel to either cancel the conference or at the very least just blandly say that some ships were missing and not even remotely suggest the involvement of sea monsters. But Kennedy couldn't just up and order him around. The Soviets had enough power that they could more or less compel their satellite countries what to do, but Kennedy didn't have that luxury. Iceland wasn't even remotely a satellite country. It was more like a junior partner who wasn't even all that junior. And who might still, you gotta remember, be considering pulling out of a couple of crucial treaties. But luckily for Kennedy, Hermanson was more or less of like mind and really didn't want Yokel to go talking about sea monsters, certainly without hard proof. He didn't want to panic either. The Icelandic economy would be even more susceptible to sea monster panic than the American. And this is part of why I said a minute ago that I wouldn't be surprised if Hermanson had been waiting for the call. Again, I can't prove this, but it really does look to me like Hermanson had been hoping that Kennedy would make this request, giving him internal political cover for ordering Yokel to nerf the press conference. You know, sorry, Ener, I'm with you, but the Americans are just so insistent. What are you going to do? I don't know. Maybe that's what was going on. Maybe Kennedy was just really persuasive. Either way, Kennedy got what he wanted, and Hermanson formally ordered Yokel not to so much as conjure up the faintest shadow of a sea monster in his conference. And duly, on the morning of May 3rd, 1987, Einar Yokel told a room half full of bored reporters just that three ships, the Trollofoss, the Vega, and the Isberg, were all missing at sea, and that the Icelandic Navy and Coast Guard were busily conducting search and rescue operations. The conference attracted no news interest whatsoever in the United States, with the American media completely focused on the spectacle of New York real estate developer and obnoxious celebrity presence Donald Trump dying of diarrhea. Back in Washington, meanwhile, President Kennedy had gotten in touch with General Abernathy. And that is it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, please join me next week as we see what it was that Kennedy was so hot to talk to this General Abernathy about, and as I get to introduce you to the U.S. military entity, formerly known as the General Interest Joint Operations Expeditionary Team. Thanks, and be well. <laughs>